for the week of February 11th, 2016. This is the Energy Gang from Green Tech Media. This week, what does it take to truly change a utility from the inside? Not just cosmetic changes, but true structural changes to how a utility operates a distributed energy-based business and interacts with its customers. We'll talk with one man who's trying to do just that with a team of people. Then we'll talk about two major Supreme Court decisions on demand response and the president's ambitious climate plan. One of them really good, one of them not so good. And finally, we want to touch on California's net metering ruling, which the solar industry is very happy about. Utilities, not so much. I'm Stephen Lacey. I'm in Washington, D.C. I am fresh off the plane from Distributech, where I've uh, been talking about utilities all week. So I'm ready for today's conversation. Already with mics in hand are my two co-hosts, Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shah. Catherine's in D.C. How are you? I'm doing great. Since we last taped, I we had a 30-inch blizzard, and then it all melted. I know. It's been weeks. I left like two days after the blizzard for Mexico, and I was uh, very pleased to get out because I love the snow, but D.C. doesn't quite know what to do with it, so it just kind of sits around. But the melting was good. Jigger is in New York City where he also got snowed on. How are you, sir? I'm doing great. I think New York City is used to the snow, so we did just fine. Our guest is in the greater Boston area where they are certainly used to snow. Uh, he has spent decades in the utility sector in New England. It is Ed White, the vice president of New Energy Solutions at National Grid. National Grid, of course, is a large multinational electric and gas utility based in the UK, and it has operations all throughout the Northeast US. So Ed's worked on efficiency programs and smart grid initiatives there. But he's recently taken on a new role at National Grid, heading up an area of the business that will bring together its work in efficiency, renewables, storage, electric cars, and grid automation into one place. Ed, welcome to the Energy Gang. Well, thank you all for having me. I'm excited to be here and talk about uh, the exciting times we are seeing across this industry. So I was just in Distributech where I heard a, a lot of case studies I talked to a lot of utilities and tech vendors about this stuff. There really is legitimate excitement. Um, but I have to admit, I'm a little buzzworded out. So if you can, give us the straightest way you can. What are you trying to do here at the New Energy Solutions Group? Why form this group? And uh, in the simplest way possible, describe what you're doing. Yeah, so I'm uh, happy to do that. And like you... Um, I'm very much buzzworded out as well. And so what we're trying to do with New Energy Solutions, simply put, is show folks the way of the future, not just talk about it and tell them about it. So through our demonstration projects across our service territory, um, through do, doing different pilots and different projects, we really want to show how the integration of the future utility can be um, brought together versus just the interconnecting. So is this team basically focused on the pilot projects that you're working on and more specifically in REV, right? I mean, you're rolling out an efficiency offering, uh, a community energy offering. What is materially different about the pilots that you're doing today that we've 
heard so much about over the years. I mean, utilities have piloted this stuff to death. And now we're at a point where the technologies are very real. So what's materially different with your pilots that you're doing today than what, say, you might have been doing five years ago? Yes. I mean, really what we're focused on, and and if you recall, and it's been a whirlwind. I mean, we launched the group eight months ago um, back in June, um, and it was very much focused on what we were seeing in the markets we operate. So in New York, there's um, the often talked about REV um, initiative. And we wanted to put some demonstration projects into play where we could test out new business models, um, most importantly, new partnership models, and really differentiate the service to our customers. And I agree with you, for the last you know, X number of years, the industry collectively, not just utilities, has all been very much focused on the technology. But really what we're trying to do with this group is bring the technology and the customer solutions to the customers and sort of co-create it as we go. So a lot of our programs are focused, um, you know, customer first and technology second. Okay, so uh, before I turn to Catherine and Jigger on that, help me really understand what that means. Like, what do you mean when you say you bring that to the customers? What kind of offerings are you talking about? How does the customer receive those? And how is that interaction materially different from what you do today? Yeah, so a great example, and, and this has been a journey, and, and you all have been following this um, as well as I have. Um, back in 2008, 2009, it was all about the meter. It was all about smart meters and communications, and if you put this infrastructure in, it was going to unleash the opportunity for customers to participate in real-time pricing. And you know, some utilities have tested that out, and they've seen some value in those programs, Um, We took a much more measured approach, and instead of just focusing on the meter, we wanted to do a more comprehensive program, and we tested that out in um, the city of Worcester, Massachusetts. Uh, It's the largest city that we serve in the the Commonwealth, and we brought 15,000 smart meters along with some grid modernization, so devices along uh, the network, to really come up with a comprehensive solution that included in-home devices, included in-home technology and in-home information where customers could holistically um, receive the value or the benefit of this new um, comprehensive grid. So, Ed, when you look at what Massachusetts has done with their grid modernization initiative, how does that compare? Because it seems that this program in Worcester would feed right into that. How does that compare to where New York is right now? Yeah, so Catherine, that's a great point. So our Smart Energy Solutions Program, as we talk about it, is exactly what we filed um, with different options in our grid modernization effort. So in Massachusetts, the way I would answer your question is that was very much focused on a modernized grid, both customer-focused as well as grid-focused. As I transition to New York, as as we look at New York, um, I would say it's a much more holistic uh, desired transformational state where this market will be created. Um, there'll be planning, there'll be operations, and there'll be market um, rules set up at the distribution level um, through the utility companies at first, but then you know where it goes from there, who knows. So really what we're trying to do in New York is demonstrate uh, different components of that so that you can have a much more informed debate and discussion as to what customers want, what they need uh, at all levels, right? So oftentimes we think of customers as very 
um, similar. So all residential customers, as, as we all know, are not the same. So how can we differentiate um, the level of offerings to our customers to give them different choices? And what we're doing is actually building that on the backbone of our energy efficiency programs, which we've been doing for you know over two decades. So this differentiation in service is not necessarily new to the entire marketplace. It's just new to some parts of the marketplace, including with our regulators. So through demonstrations, we believe we'll be able to show progress, show what works, and then just as importantly, show what doesn't work. So I guess, you know, one of the things that puzzles me when I have these conversations is that, um, you know, as you know, solar is on a tear, both in Massachusetts and in New York. I mean, in the last quarter, we had 9,000 applications that were approved in New York on um, the New York Sun program, and Massachusetts is similar. Um, but, you know, I think when you look at some of the utility scale or CNI, you know, sort of projects, you get just a tremendous amount of complaints, right? So, and the interconnection process and the sort of transparency there um, in both states. And so I wonder how you resolve this sort of like customer centric point of view with, you know, some of the on the ground facts that people refer to around delays in interconnection and delays in, you know, some of the paperwork that, you know, I think is, is, sort of part and parcel of this transition. Yeah, no, Jigger, I think it's a great point. And um, you happen to have in me a huge solar advocate. Um, part of my past experience has been the development of some of the national grid-owned solar. And we're not just owning the solar to um, help contribute to the solar objectives of the state, but we're really trying to position it as how can we test out certain technologies like smarter inverters to help with the uh, inter the integration of renewables um, as the market marketplace continues to evolve. Um, one thing that I'm very proud of is our you know solar phase one. We did five megawatts. Solar phase two, we're going to have by the time we're done over 20 sites, over 20 megawatts. And while that's not going to you know tip the scales with regard to the ambitions in one particular state for solar in Massachusetts, it does help pave the path of how future interconnections will be done. So we're really trying to work with the solar industry and the developers who, in fact, are building our projects to really help uh, inform some of the more antiquated processes associated with the interconnection. And that's a distinction that I always try to make. Interconnection is so much different than integration. And what New Energy Solutions is really tasked with doing is finding that better way to integrate all of these different technologies, whether they be utility owned or you know market owned and that's you know going back to Catherine's point that's exactly what Rev envisions how do you make this orchestra how do you conduct this orchestra in a way that um, is seamless and is is produces the right value for all of our customers right but just to push on that a little bit deeper um, you know the when you think about Rev and you know in New York uh, the the utility is a very difficult thing to sort of nail down right you've got the regulated and the unregulated side. You also have, you know, within the the utility, you have the grid operations, the new energy group, like you're representing, you know, and other parts of the utility. And so then the question becomes, like, if one side of the utility is doing one thing and the other side of the utility is doing something else and the finger pointing starts occurring, if if you're not getting that level of service, right, then and we're trying to show how the utility becomes more customer centric at some point that plays itself out at the public service commission, right? I mean, you get 
complaints, you get hundreds of people that, that intervene, and then you end up getting top-down mandates, which is what's happened in Massachusetts and New York um, around utility behavior, which I'm just trying to figure out exactly how this becomes more of an amicable you know, sort of transition as opposed to what it's been, which is sort of a judicial process. Yeah, no, exactly. And I think, you know, not every utility is created equal. Um, and so National Grid has very much been part of a lot of those discussions. And we still have a ways to go. And one of the ways we've tried to address it, uh, to the point you just made, is instead of new energy solutions just being sort of born out of the customer organization with folks that have worked within the customer side of the business, and then having to, you know, walk across the building and get the, you know, the network people involved, We've actually brought those two groups together. So in my team of about 95 people, I've got network engineers as well as customer engineers that are looking at the customer-facing programs and how they link into this grid of the future. And so that's one way that we're trying to address that because we identified and, and actually recognized the same thing that you just brought up, which is you know, you're not going to be able to move the entire industry um, immediately but if you can actually show different examples of how it can work and how it should be working, um, that'll actually start to gain momentum a lot quicker. So I think you're speaking a language that a lot of people understand and get motivated by. But when you think about how to integrate this into a very large utility, it starts getting super complicated. And I was just at Distributech talking to folks who are experimenting with um, – different technologies like augmented reality and virtual reality and drones and figuring out how they can use these technologies to improve their operations and maintenance. And they have these individualized tech teams that are showing very clear case studies and very clear economic uh, and safety benefits for these technologies. And then they have to pass it off to three or four or five different teams and you know, and they say like, well, that's a change management process. And so when you look at what your team is trying to do, is there an equivalent there? Are you coming up with solutions that you need to then pass on to other teams that might be siloed or have you actually, is, is fixing that silo problem part of what you're trying to do here? Uh, that's exactly what we're trying to fix because we recognized you know, even as we were organized doing our grid mod work in Massachusetts or the rev uh, work, there were too many handoffs. There were too many times you had to sort of retell the story of why this is important for our customers, why this is important for the markets we serve. So what we decided to do as a leadership team and as an organization is put this group together, um, scale it as appropriate and as necessary, but all of the learnings, all of the testing, all of the the things that we want to explore will really be born out of this group. Um, and it's been amazing the reaction we've gotten internally where, you know, and I use rough numbers, but, you know, 95% of the organization is focused on the poles, the pipes, and the wires and providing that safe, reliable service that our customers expect from us. My 5% of the organization, just for rough numbers, is really focused on charting that course of the future. And that's what we're very excited about doing. And the reaction has been um, amazing that even the 95% within the organization is very much in tune with how can they help? What can they do? Um, and so it's, it's those same line crews that are going to have to be hanging these new devices that my team comes up with 
Um, and they're jazzed up about doing that because they've now seen it work in other places. So give me a sense of what these line devices and sort of the broad and breadth of your business could be. You know, I mean, as I talked to a utility the other day where they said that they had hundreds of requests that came in from their customers every week from voltage regulators to backup power to, you know, just power quality issues to other things. Um, and that their utility was on track to only helping their customers with 6% of all of the requests. The other 94% were rejected. Um, so like, help me understand how that dynamic changes. Like what, if a customer wants to call you and says, yeah, you know, I'm Whole Foods Market or I'm, you know, Staples or I'm whatever, you know, and they want to do electric vehicle charging and, you know, all these other things, like how does your group accommodate them? Yeah, so that's it's a great question, and it's something that we're still in the process of, quite frankly, figuring out. Um, and I referenced earlier our energy efficiency programs. So in some cases, our custom energy efficiency programs for customers like Whole Foods or any of the colleges or universities allows us to do certain things with regard to efficiency that as we look to expand the definition and include things like um, DR programs, we might be able to fit an electric vehicle program into that. So in some cases, it's figuring out the technology. In some cases, it's figuring out the process in which we would deliver that to the market. But one of the biggest challenges we're going to see, and this is where the show-not-tell approach um, is really going to help to take hold, is working with our regulators to get comfortable with this new paradigm, with this new ability to help um, customers manage their energy in, in significantly different ways. So what we've done in some of our uh, some of our largest customers have come to us, uh, Jigger, for your example of electric vehicle charging. So in some cases, we've worked with NYSERDA in New York or DOE to get workplace charging grants where we would partner and install these charging stations. And then we would also monitor the usage to make sure that these are the right places to put these. So it's all kind of a journey. Um, we by no means have it all figured out, but it's it's really exciting to have a group that's whole charter and purpose is to really help to try to figure it out. And this is really exciting to me because when I was running the Gridwise Alliance about eight years ago, and it was during the stimulus funds, and we were getting a lot of funds out there for smart grid, there was an assumption, and I was one of the people who was assuming, that customers were going to be ready for this. So we're going to be really ready to interact with the grid and with their utility, and it it just wasn't the case. But I'm wondering if now you've seen a move to that. It sounds like with your program that customers are more ready than they have been. Uh, so I would say, yes, we are seeing, you know, you always have those early adopters. Those early adopters are going to either figure it out themselves or they're going to go to their utility or energy provider, uh, whatever makeup they, they happen to be. Um, but what we're seeing, which is mo most exciting, is as we're doing these programs, those folks that kind of lay back a little bit and wait for the early adopters to experiment first, um, they're now embarking on some of our programs. So we actually saw with our Smart Energy Solutions program, which was 15,000 customers in Worcester, you know, the early adopters did exactly what we would hope that they would do. But it was really the bulk of the customers that, you know, after the first couple of events, really started asking more questions, wanted to get more information, and wanted to know what they could do to help manage their individual energy usage. And that's the part that we've never really been able to help them to uh, the degree we are today with the technology coupled with energy efficiency, right? Before, it would just be, 
you had a high bill, there's energy efficiency solutions that we can offer you, but it was work that you had to go off and do. Now the utility is actually bringing, and with partners, I should say, this isn't just all national grid. We've learned a ton from our partners. We've learned a ton about how to communicate and how to interact with customers. So I think that customer aspect is going to be a hugely critical piece because what you find out is customers don't necessarily know or understand all the stuff that goes into making that, um, you know, making the lights come on when you flip the switch. We can't have this conversation without talking about NRG, the independent power producer that uh, really was seen as one of the leaders in integrating this holistic clean energy strategy. And David Crane has uh, been talking for years about completely transforming his company. And, um, you know, he, he stepped down late last year. The, the company's stock performance was really poor for a variety of reasons, not just because of their green energy businesses, but investors didn't seem to like the strategy. And, you know, you're making these sweeping changes, and to use a cliche phrase, you're, you're changing the tires on the vehicle as you're, you're driving the car. Um, so what lessons do you learn from a company like NRG, which has had such an ambitious strategy, but really had so much trouble executing it. And are you doing it in a different way from what they're doing? And is there anything specifically that you've learned over the last year that you would apply to the way you want to run this area of your business? Yeah, I mean, so I I would say the approach NRG was taking is not wrong. Um, And I respect um, David Crane and the approach that he was taking. I think he was a pioneer. Um, And I guess the only thing I would say that we're probably doing maybe a little bit different is we're very much focused on partnering across the marketplace, right? So it doesn't have to just be a national grid offering. It could be a national grid offering with, you know, many of the partners that we're dealing with or working with um, within Rev, you know, some big companies, some small companies. So I think, you know, trying to start a business or organize a business around your solution being the only only solution. And I'm not saying that that's what NRG was doing. They were trying to make a pivot from their traditional business to the new emerging business. I just think that takes a long time and you have to have the stomach to do it and the, the, the runway to allow it to happen. I think, you know, while there are some that look at the utilities and paint them with a broad brush and say they don't want to change, they don't want to evolve, um, I think you can look at specific utilities like National Grid that absolutely do want to change on behalf of our customers and bring these integrated solutions to our customers like we've been doing with energy efficiency. I think there's a lot of folks that miss the, uh, that miss the fact that there's a huge market out there that supports energy efficiency, um, especially here in the Northeast where over the last two, and a half, you know, two, two decades, 25 years or so, um, we've actually built an industry and that industry is the one that actually supports energy efficiency. It's all administered through the utility. So there are controls and there's measures and there's budgets and everything. And and that's probably a model that we could expand upon as we think about things like battery storage, electric vehicles, all the fun and cool stuff that we're talking about today. Is this an adapt or die situation? I don't look at it as an adapt or die. I look at, at it as this has been in our DNA for years. Um, we've always been looking for new ways to serve our customers. Um, 
So to me, it's what we're entrusted to do on behalf of our customers. And we have data that shows that, you know, more than 50% of our customers want to have more answers from their utility, right? So we, we know that. And the other 50% probably just haven't even asked the question yet. So how can we partner across the marketplace to come up with the solutions where nobody has to die and we can just have a much more efficient uh, investment in this network of the 21st century? Ed White is the vice president of the New Energy Solutions Group at National Grid. Ed, thanks for coming on the show. No, thanks for having me. I would love to come back. Moving on now, it has been a couple of weeks of highs and lows at the Supreme Court. Justices in the highest court in the land are making some very important decisions that could shape our future energy system. Uh, The first, last week, was a decision to keep in place federal regulations allowing demand response to be compensated at the same rate as power plants. It's a little more complicated than that, but that's the gist. We'll get Catherine to re-explain. We've talked about it a couple times on the show, but now we have the official decision. The second had a lot of people totally freaked out this week. The Supreme Court decided to freeze Obama's landmark climate regulations on power plants, dubbed the Clean Power Plan, until a lower district court rules on challenges currently underway to its legality. We'll get to that one in a second. First, to the good news. Catherine, how much did the demand response industry have to celebrate after last week's ruling? And and, and what exactly did the Supreme Court rule? Okay. Well, first of all, it was a snow day when the ruling came out. So the entire federal government was closed. Nobody expected this to happen on January 25th, and then it came out to everybody's surprise. Um, To take a step back a little bit, Order 745 was issued in 2011, And Order 745, I've talked about this before, but it allowed demand response to be compensated in the energy markets, which is part of the wholesale market, the energy markets, um, at the full price of generation. And um, EPSA, which is the Electric Power Supply Association, took it to court to say that, that it shouldn't be compensated at the price of generation. And in fact, that FERC shouldn't even have any you know, ability to regulate demand response um, because it was on the distribution side and it interfered with the retail process and states' rights. So in May of 2014, the circuit court ruled two to one um, to vacate Order 745. And um, the dissent in that decision was a very strong dissent and made a lot of cases, a a strong case that could then be taken forward by the U.S. Solicitor General, who was representing FERC and the entire U.S. government in appealing to the Supreme Court. So, and Internoc as well, and many, many others, parties who filed amicus briefs, also pushed very hard to get this taken up by the Supreme Court. It was heard in October of 2015, And then here we are, you know, one and a half years after that first uh, decision by the circuit court, we have it completely, the circuit court decision completely struck down. And um, it was a six to two decision. There was one Justice Alito who was recused because he, I believe it, because he owns stock in Johnson Controls, and they actually are a demand response provider. So there were only eight justices. It was a very strong opinion of the court written by Justice Kagan. Uh, so she was joined by Breyer, Kennedy, Roberts, Ginsburg, and Sotomayor. Scalia and Thomas dissented, and Scalia wrote the dissent. Um, I would recommend that everybody read Kagan's opinion 
not just the summary, but her full opinion. It is really well written. It is one of the best descriptions, clearest descriptions of the issue I've ever seen. It explains demand response. It explains pricing and uses an analogy of airports, of airplane seats. That's really makes it clear. She's she's funny um, and makes a, an extremely strong case. And it, and, it, and the FERC was then upheld in a number of ways. I do think that the airline seats analogy was mine on a previous podcast. <laughs> That's probably true. I would so, not be surprised if they heard so it. I, I think that I think that that should be in a footnote. <laughs> okay, well, it's du- duly noted. Here's the footnote right there. <laughs> yeah, it was great because so what she said is there. You know, there were two issues. One. Does the Federal Power Act, which was passed in 1935, um, permit FERC to regulate demand response at all, or does that impinge on state authority? And then if it does, should it be compensated at the full value of generation? And the answer was yes to both. And in fact, um, Justice Kagan said to promote in promoting demand response, and I'm quoting her here, FERC did no more than follow the dictates of his regulatory mission to improve the competitiveness, efficiency, and reliability of the wholesale market. I mean, they, she basically said that demand response falls in the sweet spot of FERC's statutory charge. So it was upheld, and this is important not just because Order 745, which is only for the energy markets and only for demand response, um, you know, regulates that. But this really has much larger implications because First Energy had filed a complaint immediately after the circuit court decision came out that said, hey, wait a second. If FERC doesn't have authority over the demand response, it doesn't have any authority over the distribution side at all. And if it can't do that, then the capacity market should also be at risk. And so this had the potential, if if the decision by the circuit court had stood, it had the potential to affect not just demand response in the energy markets, but all the capacity market, all of the distribution generation, efficiency, storage, demand response, everything. It had this enormous potential bleed over effect. So now that we're, you know, we vanquished Darth Vader, better known as First Energy, I, I'm curious, you know, like one of the big things for me was that this is monumental in getting us to NREL's um, sort of projections of very high penetrations of variable generation, right? That, you know, one of the cheapest ways of of having very high penetrations of wind and solar is to have grid flexibility through demand response and energy storage. And now it seems like those markets are going to continue to weave together unfettered. Yes, absolutely. This allows the si- those two sides, the distribution side and the supply side, to be able to interact much more seamlessly. So I think you're right. This is going to open the door for a lot of additional um, compensation structures, tariffs. I'm really excited at this ruling because I think it allows us to then go forward with, with the ability for other types of innovation to participate in the grid. And the markets certainly reacted positively after the, after the decision. I think Enernox stock shot up over 30%, and uh, GTM Research did a quick calculation and determined that this ruling could amount to a couple hundred million dollars more in revenue in the demand response market in the U.S. uh, now that we have clarity on these rules. Let's go to something a little less certain, and that is Obama's clean power plan So in a surprise decision this week, uh, the Supreme Court issued a stay on the rules and said, let's wait for the D.C. District Court 
it's the district court, right? It's, it's the court right under the Supreme Court. Is that correct? Right, it's the circuit court. It's the circuit, circuit court, yep. They, are, they want to wait for those challenges to play out, and that could be many, many months. So basically, the administration has to wait four, six months before it can do anything to implement the Clean Power Plan. What's going on here, Catherine? Yeah, so a couple of things. Yes, this was shocking. And the way it was done, it's never been done like this before for regulation. In fact, this kind of stay is usually just used to stay executions of people. Um, so it was highly unusual that this was put out. And well, let's be clear. This was an execution of the coal industry. Well, <laughs> well and it was um, so... But there was no explanation. So it was really just put out there. And it doesn't just say that the circuit court, you need to wait for the circuit court to act. Now, the circuit court is going to um, rule June 2nd. They also have June 3rd as a hold in case it runs over. They will probably um, then take a decision sometime in the fall of this year. And then the Supreme Court, this stays it until the if it's appealed to the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court takes a decision too. So it's not just until the circuit court makes a decision necessarily. And if this, whatever the circuit court's decision is, if it's in favor of the clean power plan, it has to be absolutely an airtight case because that case is what's going to have to stand up to, and, and they, they feel like the circuit court is favorable to the clean power plan and to the way it was done. Um, that's going to have to be written so tightly that it will be able to then make the case to the Supreme Court if it is appealed to the Supreme Court. I mean, for what it's worth, I, you know, I actually think that this is probably the right move by the Supreme Court. Uh, you know, I do think that EPA overplayed its hand on um, the MAC rules. And what they were basically said was um, after that rule was shut down, um, this is the Mercury rules, um, EPA basically boasted about the fact that most of the coal plants had already been upgraded um, and and so it didn't really matter that the rules were shut down, and and I think that's the reason why the Supreme Court stayed this rule because you know I think that's what the complaints were complainants were were saying is that you know if you don't put a stay on this then you know all of these state implementation plans and all these other things will have been submitted before the court actually adjudicates this case and if you strike it down three years from now then you know we would have already spent billions of dollars. Yeah, I think you're right about that. But ironically, a lot of the states are still moving forward. And the way that the Clean Power Plan, the dates that they're due, most of them were going to try to wait until 2018 anyway to file. Very few of them were going to be ready by this summer to submit their plan. So most of them were applying for extensions anyway. And so, you know, given that, it'll be just in time for states to be able to submit their plans when the Supreme Court has made their ruling. So you don't think this delay is like as big, is that big of a deal then? Is that what I'm well, hearing? Because I mean, everyone that I've been hearing from has said, wow, this could push this into the next, next administration. There are plenty of deadlines here that they're now going to miss. And I realize that states were going to delay some of their implementation plans, but, uh, Without getting too deep into the details of the mechanics here, this seems to be pretty nerve-wracking for the Obama administration, which may not be able to finalize everything 
as uh, Obama leaves office. Well, he wasn't going to finalize everything anyway. I mean, it's yeah. written for a long-term implementation. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, it's going to need someone to really stay the course after he's out of office. And so the whole issue was, you know, was it written in a, such a way um, that it will hold up? Now, you know, you could say if even if they don't use the way the Clean Power Plan is structured in the end, that the mechanics of it, there's still a finding that EPA has to regulate carbon. So they're going to have to do something. And we're moving with given the tax credit omnibus bill. I mean, in the short term, the momentum is there to do renewables. And there are studies that show that just those tax credits will allow us to meet those carbon goals that were in the Clean Power Plan by 2023 with nothing else in place. Well, now, I've, I've said that emphatically. <laughs> I actually don't think the Clean Power Plan is going to mean one thing because it's so weak. And now that the tax credits have been uh, you know, extended, that we're going to hit it anyway. The, ol the, ol the only reason the Clean Power Plan was valuable was it forced the state process to occur such that we can inject all of our data to prove to some of the Neanderthals in the states that the data was showing that we were cheaper than new coal. Yeah, so I think it was important in a couple of ways. Yes, in, in that way to kind of push, lean on the states. I think it is important to set certainty for utilities. So a lot of utilities have not been happy about this decision by the Supreme Court at all. They've said, well, this just takes away all the certainty that we had. You know, we knew now, we knew what where we were going. Their coal plants are already shutting down, so they're already trying to figure out what their future looks, looks like. So they had been moving in that direction, and the lack of certainty is the one thing utilities hate more than anything else. Um, I do think, though, that it also sends a signal internationally, and that's what we need to be careful of, because I think what Obama has been trying to do is to position us as a leader on emission reduction. And this was so significant in Paris, the, with the messaging and with the way we were doing it. So I think that's where it becomes um, less than optimal. But this was my point to the, nas the National Grid segment, which was basically that like one part of the utility isn't supporting the other part of the utility. I mean, one part of the utility wants certainty. The other part of the utility was the one that was forcing the attorney general to like sign on to this this day. What one thing that I thought was going to is really interesting is when I was reading the Order 745 decision and I was reading what Kagan wrote, the justices have to get so in the weeds. And I know their clerks do a lot of this, but they have to learn about subjects that they didn't know anything about in a very sophisticated way. And there is this great opportunity to educate the justices, including Kennedy, um, who really came around on Order 745, too, to to see, to try to educate them on this and show them that this rule is actually important and is good public policy and does follow the law. Okay, so what's next? Do we just sit and wait? What are you going to be watching now, given this stay at the Supreme Court, Kathy? No, so I think we watch states, and I think states are still moving forward because, you know, a lot of states want to move forward anyway. A lot of them have these initiatives like the New York Rev and Massachusetts Grid Modernization. So they've already started doing things. So I think the work is still going on on the states. Um, and, and it's interesting to watch that. I would give a shout out to E&E &E and News' um, Power Plan Hub. It's a great resource for everything that's going on in the states. I've been reading that <laughs> religiously to figure out who's doing what. Um, but, yeah, I don't think things are going to slow down at all, especially for renewables. I agree. I think half the states are going to be the providers of renewables and the other half of the states will be the buyers of renewables because they decided to sit on their hands while they're waiting for this um, process to adjudicate itself. All right. So that was a pretty lengthy conversation on uh, what's going on at the Supreme Court. 
Let's just finish off very, very quickly with a piece of news out of California. Um, most of you probably heard our show from last week in which we talked about the crazy politics of net metering in Nevada. And we're just going to spend a few minutes here talking about the neighboring state of California where a completely different situation is playing out. So, so in a ruling, California upheld net metering with some modest changes, ensuring that the state's solar bonanza will definitely continue. Utilities aren't happy that there weren't more changes, and, you know, of course, the solar interests were ecstatic. So so how do we do we read this one? Jigger, just quickly, um, an undeniable win for California solar companies. But let's take the utilities perspective here. Is Is this fair to keep the status quo in a state with so much solar that is already cost competitive? How do you come down on this ruling? Yeah, I'll say the same thing I did when we talked about Nevada, right? Pigs get fed and hogs get slaughtered. And we are now no longer pigs at the trough. The solar industry is using its political power to look more like a hog. And what happens when you are deemed a hog is that out of nowhere, you end up getting slaughtered. And so I do think that the solar industry needs to be careful. It needs to start thinking about what the E3 sort of you know value of solar study showed in California and some of those other data points and figure out what the transition looks like for how we compensate the utilities for some of these costs, um, even if we want to make it a slow transition over the next five years. Um, we actually have to identify what that transition looks like because otherwise you could see abrupt reversals. Okay, so we have very limited amount of time here. I guess I'll just ask one more question. How crazy good is this for California's solar market? I mean, California is about 50% of installs in the U.S. That's certainly going to continue. Is this just going to be a ridiculous bonanza? Oh, yeah, of course. But I mean, you know, Solar City missed on its quarterly earnings. And part of what Lyndon said was that the Nevada ruling caught him out of left field. And so I hope that he and other utility CEOs recognize that when you use this kind of political power, um, you will end up getting bitten sometimes, which is exactly what happened in Hawaii as well, right? And so for every one of these wins, we are going to get losses. And so I don't think it's the utilities that are going to shut down the solar industry and net metering. It's more the solar industry not recognizing that a transition away from net metering towards a value of solar tariff is necessary. And that even if it's five years from now, they have to proactively play offense. They can't just play defense. So, Jigger, the utilities still have to come up with their TOU rates, right? So isn't that where they can kind of get a little bit more nuanced about where the value is to them and where they can make up their losses? Right. But we talked about when we had a five-year extension of the federal government, the the solar industry is now, you know, Goliath. It's no longer David, right? And so, so, you know, like it was before. And so the utilities are going to pick us off like that, you know, as you suggest. And my sense is, is that the solar industry should be proactively hiring its own academics and saying, here's what a fair time of use rate would look like for all residential customers. I mean, what came out of Distributech um, from Barbara Lockwood was, hey, we want to put demand charges on basically to screw solar specifically. No one asked her the question, well, that kind of screws your own residential customers because they would be confused by it. But the solar industry actually has to not just say that's a bad idea. They have to say, and here is what a good idea looks like. Well, those ideas will be coming forth more and more in 2016 and 2017. And certainly a, a really remarkably different story in California than in 
Nevada. Uh, I think we'll leave it at that because we're kind of running out of time here, and I want to tell our listeners something they don't know. Catherine, your story is up first. Thanks. Yeah, I wanted to tout something that I'm not involved in, but my firm is. One of my colleagues, Jeff Kramer, has been instrumental in this. Uh, We started a coalition for community solar access. You can find it at communitysolaraccess.org. And the founding members were the Clean Energy Collective, Community Energy Ecoplexus, NRG, Ethical, First Solar, and Recurrent. And this group is a business-led trade association, but it's going to try to expand the access to community solar um, in partner with with consumers, stakeholders, and utilities. And it's going to really be focused on that sector of the industry. So I'm pretty excited to see what they end up doing. Awesome. Yeah, that's great. That that sector has... We predicted a pretty big boom there. We've revised our expectations. I think there are a lot of issues associated with uh, the complexities of financing, uh, permitting those projects, but certainly a lot of promise there, and it'll be nice to have an organization to help support those uh, cumulative efforts. Jigger, what do you got? So I just want to talk about uh, briefly about Obama's new oil tax. I just thought it was the most ham-handed announcement ever. I don't understand it at all. It basically says, let's tax oil at the oil company level so that there's no transparency to consumers, even though we know it's going to be sent down to consumers instead of actually just raising the gas tax. It just seemed like a pure political move to appease Bernie Sanders admirers. I just thought it was not a great moment for the Obama administration. Well, the good news is the budget request doesn't mean anything. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, but it, but if you were going to talk about a carbon tax or something like this, you could have done something that was more inclusive. This is just going to now make this issue more divisive. Okay, so I just came back from Distributech uh, like an hour and a half before we started recording, and that was my first time at the show, to be honest. And one of the things that I focused on were it was what I mentioned in our National Grid section, which was like the wearable computing stuff, augmented reality like Google Glass or total virtual reality like Oculus um, or you know just like wearable watches and so forth drones to monitor the distribution system or transmission lines. And this stuff is here. It's getting cheaper. And the companies actually have some pretty sophisticated applications to allow and the data from utilities to make this stuff work. And I was uh, just really blown away by what's out there. But, you know, it's going to take a long time for these utilities to start adopting them. And I heard a few different case studies from folks. And as I mentioned in that Duke case study earlier in the show, the the technology guys are saying, wow, this is ready. We really have legitimate use cases for this, for, you know, for warehousing, for safety issues, for monitoring equipment failures. But it goes up a very long chain of command in these utilities. And so this stuff is coming but I really can't say when. But that was one of the more interesting elements of the show. Oh, and Jigger will say they'll want to rate base it all. Yeah. absolutely. smurfly <laughs> <laughs> That's our show, folks. The Energy Gang is produced by Green Tech Media. You can find all our episodes at greentechmedia.com slash podcast. We're on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and any podcast app of your choice. Don't forget about our sister podcast, The Interchange, which you heard last week is our filler. We've got some uh, pretty compelling episodes coming up, and I think you should subscribe to that. You know, if you're GTM Square, you can listen in every week. 
And of course, you can always get this show for free every week. In the meantime, contact us if you want to send us any musings or show ideas. We can be reached at podcasts at greentechmedia.com. Jigger, have an awesome rest of your week and weekend. Thanks. It's going to be fun. Catherine, you do the same. Thanks, you too. With Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw, I'm Stephen Lacey, and we are the Energy Gang, a production of greentechmedia.com. We'll catch you next week. Thank you.